We're looking at Ecclesiastes and this passage on money and wealth. And the mere fact that this was written over 2,000 years ago tells you something, doesn't it? That the desire to get rich is not new. But that shouldn't surprise us, should it? You see, the writer, the preacher, is investigating life under the sun, a life where God plays no part. And his repeated diagnosis is that in such a secular world, everything is hevel. It's smoke. You try and get a hold on it and it just slips through your fingers. There's no substance to it. And if that is the case, well, it's no wonder that we run after concrete things, is it? Things we can handle, things that we can hold, things that we can count, things that feel solid, like possessions and wealth, to find meaning and stability and satisfaction in those things in life. But in this passage, before he gets to wealth, he deals with poverty. He takes us to those who don't have possessions and riches, to the poor. First point then, the powerlessness of poverty. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Sue and I are slowly coming to the end of the process of applying for Swiss citizenship. And when I say slowly, I mean slowly. Because there are the application forms that you send in, and they then get sent back to you for you to send back in again. There are the interviews and the exams at the commune, and then there are those at the canton, and those get sent back to the commune before going back to the canton, before finally your application limps its way to the federal authorities. And you think, Jesus could return before they approve this. Well, if the desire to be rich is nothing new, neither is bureaucracy, the preacher says. Because the citizen, especially the poor citizen, who has few resources and little education, and who needs the system to work for them, who needs justice to fight for them, is met by a wall of red tape and phone calls aren't returned, and their dossier is passed from one department to another, and that piece of documentation that they sent in, sorry, we have no record of it. And the preacher says, don't be amazed at this. Don't be amazed that the system seems weighted against the poor and the marginalized. Now, why is that? Because each layer of bureaucracy, he says, is watched over by a higher layer. Superiors are keeping their eyes out for any trouble, any competition, 
from those ambitious young bucks below them. So they will stall anything that might help them get noticed. And those below, they learn pretty quickly that if you want to get ahead in the system, you've got to curry favour with the boss. So don't rock the boat, don't question any previous decisions. And so the machinery of government moves slowly and it's the poor who need the system to work for them who suffer. But there's another reason. Because in a corrupt system, everyone is in on the game, aren't they? Everyone is getting a cut and everyone is watching out for their mates. So don't be amazed when you see the poor unable to get justice in such a system. Don't be amazed because you know the heart of man, the preacher is saying. He will use power and influence to prosper himself and his mates, not the poor who can't offer him anything. So what's the answer? Become British, the preacher says. Have a monarchy. Verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Okay, maybe not a monarchy per se, but a king, a system of government that wants its people to thrive and to thrive through productivity. A system of government that encourages industry over laziness and cultivation over corruption. But of course, you could hear that. You could hear what the preacher says and think, okay, so the answer to the futility of poverty is the market, it's wealth creation. Well, no, says the preacher, wealth creation is absolutely better than people being strangled by red tape or corruption. But if poverty is one problem, the love of money is not the answer. Second point then, the vanity of riches. Now, I don't know if you saw in the news recently, but Jeff Bezos of Amazon has just bought himself a new super yacht. And it came with a neat price tag of $500 million. Apparently, this is what the super rich have been up to during COVID. But you can look at that, or you can look at their lifestyles and think, man, if I could just have half of what he has, if I could have some of that, then I would know I'd made it in life. But in the rest of this passage, the preacher puts that desire for wealth under the microscope. And as he does so, in verses 8 to 17, there is no mention of God because this is pursuing wealth for wealth's sake. This is making money in a secular world where God has been erased. And his conclusion is, it's hevel, it's vanity. Firstly, there's the vanity of loving it. 
verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You see, you can look at someone like Bezos and think, I would love what he has. And the preacher says, no, you wouldn't, because it will never satisfy you. You think it'll deliver the goods for you, but in reality, it's just like smoke slipping through your fingers. I mean, just ask the super rich. J.D. Rockefeller was the Jeff Bezos of his day, and he was asked, how much is enough? And he replied, just a little bit more, just one more dollar. Why? Because wealth promises you happiness and fulfillment, but you get wealth and possessions and it doesn't quite deliver. So the obvious conclusion is, well, clearly I don't have enough yet. I need just a little bit more. The actor Raf Spall recently told an interviewer, all I've got to do is put my name into Google or Twitter and I can see what people really think of me. And the bad reviews make you feel terrible, but the good reviews also make you feel nothing, he said. And he describes how it was after appearing in a one-man show at the National Theatre where every performance ended with a standing ovation and with rave reviews, that he finally got it. All the applause, he said, didn't make me feel any better as a human. We spend our lives going, if I just achieve this amount of success, status, financial security, if I just lose 10 pounds, then I'll feel okay. But this isn't the case. You realise that there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But it was good because I realised no amount of adulation is going to be enough. No amount of success will ever make you feel good. He who loves money or adulation, the preacher says, will never be satisfied by it. But it's not just that money loved for itself doesn't satisfy, it also brings a whole load of undesirables with it. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Imagine the scenario. You get a better job with a better salary. So what do you do? If you've got kids, you put them into private school. But your kids now mix with other kids who have the latest gadgets and who go on better holidays than you do. And you need to stay in the game because, of course, in a secular world, as we've been seeing, in a world under the sun, life is all about competition. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. It's about comparisons. But that comes with a price tag. But still, you can now afford a bigger house. So you need a cleaner and a gardener 
and a nanny for the kids because work is consuming more of your time. And the kids aren't doing so well at school, so you get them a private tutor. And with this extra money, you need a financial advisor, and he doesn't come for nothing, and a lawyer. And your stress is beginning to rise, so there's the therapist to be paid. And increased wealth obviously means increased taxes. And you thought it'd be great if I could just earn more. But what you discover is that that more gets consumed and it feels like you are getting consumed along the way. Earn even more and you're not even sure who, who your real friends are anymore. Friends who like you for who you are, not just for what you have. Okay, but the love of money is also futile because wealth can never give you rest. Literally, the preacher says. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now go on, admit it. Have you ever been out to dinner and eaten too much and then lain in bed afterwards, unable to sleep, thinking, I ate way too much tonight. And wealth does that, the preacher says. You eat more food, you drink more wine, you put on more weight, and you lose more sleep. And if you think about it, there is a deep irony about this, isn't there? We spend money on gym memberships or sport equipment or doctor's fees to undo the effects of having more money. It's the heaven of thinking that wealth will deliver for you, the preacher says. It consumes itself as it consumes you. So firstly, there's the vanity of loving it. But secondly, there's the vanity of losing it, verses 13 and 14. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son. So this is a case of a life ruined twice over, ruined by the getting of wealth, which is kept to his hurt, maybe impacting his health or cutting him off from his true friends or wrecking his family, and secondly, ruined by the loss of it. Now, the preacher doesn't tell us how he loses it, because you can fill in the blank for yourself, can't you? I mean, maybe he was fired and he couldn't get a new job. Maybe there was a financial crash and he went down with everyone else. The point is, he lost it and now has nothing to pass on to his son. And in a world under the sun, it's heaven. There's no point to it. But it is that fleetingness of wealth, the fact that you can lose it, that should make you think twice before loving it, the preacher is saying. As Proverbs says, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. 
for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle to heaven. In other words, you can sacrifice everything for a future that never comes. You can spend your life toiling away for that little bit more and it is snatched from under your nose. Okay, but it's not just that you can lose it, it's that you can't take it with you. Because it's not just God who is unimpressed by wealth. In a secular world where there is no God and no eternity, money does you no good at the end in the face of death, does it? Because the grim reaper takes no bribes. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing of his toil that he may carry away in his hand. As Paul writes to Timothy, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And the preacher is saying, that fact alone should make you question the point of all you're doing in an under-the-sun world. Verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Because if you come with nothing and leave with nothing, what's the point? All you're getting, all your accumulation is nothing, it's hevel, it's futile. Death is the ultimate financial crash. Okay, but it's not just that you'll lose it all in the darkness of death, it's that if you let the love of money get a grip on your heart, you will bring some of that darkness of death forward into this life. Verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Get preoccupied with making it big, or become preoccupied for having lost it big, and it will take a physical and an emotional and a spiritual toll on you. The pressure of work, or of comparing yourself to others, can bring a real darkness into your life. As Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, wealth promising you stuff it will never deliver on, and the desire for other things choke the life out of you. Okay, but there is one more vanity of wealth that the preacher wants us to see. It's the vanity of not enjoying it. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honour, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. This is vanity. Now, the preacher doesn't tell us what stops the man enjoying his wealth. 
I mean, does he fall sick? Or is he the victim of injustice? Or does a war rob him in some way? The point is, the cause doesn't matter. It's the fact that it can happen. And that tells you that wealth comes with no guarantee of happiness. But we instinctively think that it should, don't we? I mean, we instinctively think that we should be able to enjoy the fruit of what we've worked for. That there's something fundamentally unjust with that being taken from us. It's why the preacher calls it an evil, that it lies heavy on us, that it's wrong. But in the secular world, where there is no God and no ultimate right and wrong, what grounds do we have for saying that anything is wrong? But whatever the reason was that this man didn't get to enjoy his wealth, the preacher's point is that you can have it. In fact, you can have everything that the ancient world considered it. Wealth, honour, even, verse 3, a hundred children and live many years and still have no burial. You can still die unmourned and unlamented because you can have everything but be so taken up with getting everything that you never enjoyed what you already had like your friends, or your family, or even the possessions you already have. It was always the next thing that you were after. And that might leave you incredibly rich, but it also leaves you incredibly poor. And to live like that is to badly misjudge life, the preacher says. In fact, verse 3, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, because to miscarry at birth is better than to miscarry throughout life. In 2007, the journalist and editor of Humble Dollar, Jonathan Clements, wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, No Satisfaction, Why What You Have Is Never Enough. And he said, we may have life and liberty, but the pursuit of happiness isn't going so well. As a country, we are richer than ever, yet surveys show that Americans are no happier than they were 30 years ago. The key problem? We aren't very good at figuring out what will make us happy. As that other great financial guru, Johnny Cash, said, being rich means you get to worry about everything except money. It's why the preacher says the stillborn infant is better off than the rich person who can't enjoy what he already has. Because, verse 5, it finds rest rather than he. Because wealth will never give you that inner rest, the rest that says, hey, you can stop trying to prove yourself. 
So we need something better than wealth, don't we? We need something that will give us rest, something that will satisfy, something that will last, something that will undermine the craving to prove ourselves, the craving for just a little bit more. Last point then, the power of contentment. Well, if in verses 8 to 17 there is zero mention of God, get to verses 18 to 20 and suddenly God is everywhere. Verses 18 and 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So there's a way of living that's good, that's fitting, that fits you as you were made to be. And it's not poverty, but neither is it the vanity of wealth. It is to find pleasure in the small daily things of life the things that you already have. In that interview I mentioned earlier with Raf Spall, having said that no amount of success or adulation will ever make you feel good enough, Spall said, it's such a cliche, but you realize what matters. The kids, the quotidian drudgery, the nappies, the night times, that's where the love is. Exactly, the preacher would say, even the daily drudgery, even in the midst of the toil and the hevel of life. You see, the secular person thinks that wealth and joy go together, that wealth does come with a guarantee of happiness. Have it and I will escape the toil, I'll find joy. And the preacher is saying, no, the power to enjoy things does not lie in the things themselves. It is a gift from God. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So instead of pursuing wealth, cultivate an openness to God, the preacher is saying. See all that you have, even your daily work, as his gift to you. And as you do, you will begin to find the power to enjoy them. See what you have now as heaven sent. And you probably won't get any richer but you will most certainly become happier. Jesus said, you've got to decide which master you will serve. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. As Paul said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So basically, life comes down to a choice of who you're going to trust, doesn't it? You can pursue that little bit more thinking it will give me the life that I want, but it will slowly strangle the life out of you. Or you can pursue the God of all joy, the God who in Christ gave up true riches and became poor so that you might become truly rich. The Son of God who subjected himself to the powerlessness of poverty so that you can have the power to enjoy all things. The one true king who possesses everything and yet gave up everything at the cross to save you, who is committed not just to cultivated fields like here, but committed to your thriving, committed to your true inner prosperity, committed to your rest, the rest that comes from knowing that though you could never deserve it, because of him, you are loved and accepted. And so you have nothing to prove. And as you find your worth in him, precisely because you are unworthy of it, his love for you will seep into you. And that will begin to influence the way you see life, even the small things of life, like food and drink and work, and you'll find joy in them. It'll even influence the way you see the quotidian drudgery, the hevel of life. Verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Live with an above-the-sun view of life, a life that is open to God, that sees the life you have now as his gift to you, and the enjoyment you will experience in it will largely blot out the heaven of life. Life will pass quickly, the preacher says, not because it's short and heavilish, but because it becomes absorbing, because you can begin to see God and beauty and life and love in all the details, because there is so much to enjoy and so little time to do it in. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Riches can never give you that rest, but God can, and he does, as you find your fit in the world. Because you were made to worship, it's just him you were made to worship, not wealth. It was him you were made to pursue, not possessions. And as you pursue him, you will find the power, the ability to enjoy everything else, including possessions. As Paul said, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who gives me strength.